tonight's reading is from Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 5. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. Welcome to Grace Community Church downtown. I'm Pastor Brooks. I'll be bringing you the word this evening as we are continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. And the theme of the book of Hebrews is hold fast. The author of Hebrews is exhorting these Jewish background believers not to abandon their faith in Christ, which is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, and go back, go back to their former ways, their former ways. And we've been looking at that over the last number of months. And I want to share with you, uh, I was reading this morning early a, an email, a, a, a prayer letter from someone who used to attend Grace Community Church years and years ago as one of the first discipleship groups that I led when I was leading a college ministry back in 1997 and 98. This individual went on staff with crew and has been in Southeast Asia for the last 20 years. And, and he was just sending his, uh, his, his prayer letter and he quoted David Mathis of Desiring God. And I thought this was such a great quote. So I want to start the, uh, start the message with that. David Mathis says, to grow in Christ, we don't set out to grow. We set out to taste his goodness. Now that seems counterintuitive. If you're a follower of Christ, presumably you desire to grow. So why would we not set out to grow? What, what David Mathis is contrasting here is that, that growth actually happens not when we pursue growth, but when we pursue a relationship with Christ. And what we are going to see in Hebrews chapter 8 as you turn there is the author here is going to contrast the contrast between a covenantal relationship with Christ and all the benefits and the joys that come from that with an old covenant relationship with God through the old covenant. Religion. He's contrasting relationship with Christ versus religion. Probably about 10 years ago, um, there in the, in the North Liberty campus, long before the downtown campus existed, uh, there was a man who was attending Grace because he was, had a romantic relationship with a certain lady that was a longtime attender of Grace. And, and he came from a very, very religious background, a Catholic background. Very different from my background. I came from a non-religious home, never been to a church service until I was actually three years into college. Didn't own a Bible, never read a Bible. This individual was raised in, under Catholicism and was a devout Catholic. Now, he was coming to Grace 
not because he wanted to, quote-unquote, change his religion, but he was pursuing a relationship with a woman who attended grace. And he was intrigued by what he was hearing. He, he didn't disagree with it. It was just different. It was new. And so we had coffee, and, and he wanted to ask me a bunch of questions. And so he came in, and, and we sat down, and he said, I, I like what I'm hearing, but it's different. Help me understand. Here's what I'm hearing. And so we opened up the Bible. We started with Romans chapter 1. It says, okay, we need to understand what does the Scripture say. We're talking about the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all people, all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For through the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith from faith. For just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So we went through. It's like here it says in Romans 1 that, that God's wrath is being revealed against mankind because men suppress the truth because of wickedness. And we see that in our culture. But the religious people are not any better. Let's take a look at the second chapter. So Paul then says, you people are no better because you know what the law says, but you don't do it. And then we get to the third chapter, and Paul basically sums it up and puts it on umbrella. He says, listen, there's no one righteous, not one, not one. All have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, he says that the law doesn't make anyone righteous. Rather, the law just shows us that we are sinners. But here's the good news, verse 23. We are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God is both just and the justifier of those who place their faith in Jesus. And we went on, went on to look at the Scriptures and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 8, verse 9, where the Apostle Paul says that we're saved by grace. It is a gift of God. It is a complete, unmerited gift. And it's received through faith. Our part is to trust. Our part is to receive. And it's not by works so that no one can boast. And so as we're doing this, this is like an hour-long conversation. And it's not just me preaching like I am now. It's me opening up the Scripture and reading and asking him questions. Okay, does this make sense? Know, that makes sense. That makes sense. So this, this. And so we're, we're talking, and he's, he seems to be tracking. He seems to be tracking. So this makes sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So we were, we're wrapping up. I said, okay, let's just say, God forbid, you pull out of the parking lot onto Dubuque Street, you're not paying attention, and you're sideswiped by a semi. You're dead. You stand before God in the next 15 minutes, and he says, he asks you, what's the basis by which I should accept you? I kid you not. Are you ready for his answer? I'm basically a good person. I'm trying to obey the Ten Commandments. What just happened to the last hour and a half? One of two possibilities. Possibility number one, I'm an awful Bible teacher, and I totally failed to communicate the Scriptures. Option number two, option number one is possible. Option number two is that the heart of man has a propensity and an uncontrollable desire to justify itself. This is why the author of Hebrews is saying in verse 1, this is the point we are trying to make. We have a better covenant in Christ. We have a better covenant in Christ. There's going to be four things we're going to look at 
today as the author of, of Hebrews here is comparing and contrasting the new covenant in Jesus, a relationship with him, with the old covenant that the Hebrew people are used to. And the author here uses old versus new covenant. I'm using religion versus relationship. So when you hear me say religion, I'm talking about the old covenant. When you hear me say relationship with Jesus, I'm talking about the new covenant. So here's what we're looking at. A better covenant. Jesus replaces religion. Four things we're going to see. Number one, the nature of religion. We have to understand what it is the author of Hebrews is talking about every time he talks about here's the way it used to be. Here's the law that you were given. Here's the ordinances that you were given. Now, they're talking about the Hebrew scriptures in, in, uh, in, in Judaism, but this basically applies roughly to religion in general. Religion in general. So the nature of religion. Second thing we're going to look at is the problem with religion. The problem with religion. Third, the purpose. And fourth, the promise of a relationship. So let's go to the Lord because honestly, as evidence from my conversation with this individual 10 years ago, nothing I say actually matters. It doesn't matter unless the Holy Spirit does a work through the preaching of his word and a preparatory work in your heart and in my heart, the word of God will fall on hardened ground. So as we're going to see, it's God who gives us a new heart. So let's go to the Lord this evening and let's ask the Holy Spirit to do the work that he desires to do in us and through us. Father, we thank you for this precious word that we have. Lord, we pray that you would work in and through the preaching of your word. Make it clear. Make it discernible. Lord, make the gospel beautiful in our minds. It already is beautiful, but make it so in our minds that we might see the beauty and the glory and the graciousness and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we worship him more deeply uh, this evening and with the rest of our lives and experience and taste his goodness and the relationship that he has for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first of all, let's take a look at the nature of religion. The nature of religion is, uh, well, let me read the scripture here that Olivia read, just to, just to recap here. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus, it's necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if we were on earth, we would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. According to the law. So the first aspect of religion is there is a pronouncement. The law was given. The law was given to Moses. Now, the principle, the principle of this pronouncement, you can find this uh, one of many places in Leviticus chapter 18. You don't have to turn there, but the reference here is Leviticus 18 verses 4 and 5. Here's what God says to Moses, which he then is supposed to instruct the people of Israel. You shall follow my rules. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. Here it is. If a person does them, 
He shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now the Apostle Paul plays off of this when he's explaining the nature of the law in verses uh, chapter 10 in Romans verse 5. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. See, that's the, that's the principle of religion. The principle of religion is do these things and you will live. Do them not and you won't. You can look at Deuteronomy chapter 25 and, and God says to Moses, tell the people, if you obey, you will be blessed. If you do not, you will be cursed. Do these things and live. That is the principle of the law. That is the principle of the law. Now, God also knows that in giving them the law, which is his statutes, his ordinance, his moral, his moral commands, which then reflect his holiness and his character, so this is how we ought to live, he knows that we won't live up to that. So there's the pronouncement, obey and live, but there's also provision. When you sin, not if, but when you sin, when you sin, atonement has to be made. And there's too many verses to actually look at this, but in, in all the way through Exodus and Leviticus, it's like, okay, God is holy. Leviticus chapter 17, be ye holy as I am holy. I am the Lord. Obey and live. And when you disobey, when you come into my presence, you cannot come without a sacrifice. Without a sacrifice. When there is sin, not if there is sin, you must have the priest mediate on your behalf. There are sin offerings. There is the sin of uh, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. So the priest would have to make sacrifices for himself because he's a human being and he sins and he's fallen short of the glory of God. And then having made an offering for himself, he goes before God and intercedes and makes offerings for the people. So do these things and live, and you'll fail. So to come before God after failing, sinning, you have to bring sacrifices. That's, that's the nature of the old covenant. Obey and live. Now what's the problem with that? What's the problem with that? The Hebrews are tending to want to go back to what they were familiar with. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 don't, don't go back. Hold fast. Hold fast to Jesus. So why shouldn't they go back? Let's take a look. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent, much more excellent than the old, uh, the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Look at verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of God. So from this, we see that God is found fault. What's he find fault with? There's two things he finds fault with. The first is the Old Covenant. The second thing is the people who receive the Old Covenant. So which is it? Is the problem with the covenant or the people that received it? Yes, it's both. It's not an either or. It's a both and. 
The covenant is flawed, and the people are flawed. Now, that doesn't mean that the law is bad. It just means it isn't able to do what the people think it's supposed to do. It can't change them. It can't change them. It can't make them righteous. It, it can tell them what is righteous, but it can't make them righteous. So, two things. What's wrong with the old covenant? Number one, number one, the commandment gives us no power to obey. Pastor Jason last week covered this in, in uh, talking about Melchizedek and his, high, his priesthood. Take a look at verse 18 in chapter 7, something that Jason brought up last week. For on the one hand, this is verse 18 in chapter 7, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its, what's the text say? Weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. Here's the nature of the law. The nature of the law reveals God's will for your life. It's a reflection or embodiment of his character. We're to be holy because he's holy. What does holiness look like? It means loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. It means having no other gods before him. It means obeying the Ten Commandments. It's good. It is good. The law is good. But it's weak and it has no power. It has no power and it doesn't give us any ability to obey. It doesn't give us any ability to obey. Two examples. Two examples. First, the arena of sexual sin. The scriptures are really clear. Sex is a gift to humankind. It's supposed to be enjoyed by a man and a woman in a covenantal relationship with one another. It's for pleasure. It's for protection. It's for procreation. It's to strengthen the covenantal bond of marriage. And God says that anything outside of that context is sin. So don't. And yet, yet, people still in religion struggle mightily with sexual temptation. When I was your age, gosh, I sound like grandpa, don't I? Back in my day, when I was your age, when I was in college, I was addicted to pornography. Every day. That was pre-internet, by the way. And today, with the access to the internet the way that we do, sexual addiction in the form of pornography is a very, very difficult and ensnaring sin. And, and many of you have and are struggling with it. So, so what does the law do? Here's what the law, the law does. Stop it. Just quit. Just say no to sexual immorality. How does that help you? It doesn't. It does not help you at all. It just tells you and defines for you what you ought not to do. But the law can tell you what you ought not to do. The law can tell you what you ought to do, but here's what the law can't do. It can't give you the desire to want what you ought to want. Nor can the law take away a desire to not want what you should not want. It just defines for you what righteousness is. It just defines for you righteous, what righteousness is. Now, 
a little bit easier sin to identify and admit that you struggle with. Notice I didn't say raise your hand if you're struggling with sexual temptation. I will ask for participants this time. Anxiety. How many of you struggle with anxiety? Listening to Jason preach, you'd think he's the most anxious creature in the human race, but he's always talking about anxiety. But that's because it's so human. It's so normal. Anxiety is nothing more than worry. And and what, is it, what, what do we see in the Old Testament about worry? The Hebrew people are the personification of anxiety. God says, trust me, I'll provide for you. And, and what's their response? Oh, we're in the desert, there's no water, why'd you bring us out here to die? Oh, we're in the desert, there's no meat, why'd you bring us out here to die? Oh, there's no bread, why'd you bring us out here to die? What kind of general would lead me to lead us to the edge of the Red Sea with no route for escape. Why'd you bring us out here to die? Grumble, 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 complain, complain. Now what is the nature here? What's going on at a heart level? At a heart level, every Israelite, every human being has a perfect plan for their lives. And God clearly isn't on the same page as we are. So when any circumstance comes up, we're in the wilderness, or COVID comes, or you're not sure if you're going to get into your grad school, or whatever, or this relationship might not work out. God has a perfect plan for your life, and He says, trust me, and you say, yeah, but. My plan is so much better, and you're screwing it up. That's the nature of anxiety. So what is the scripture? What's the solution? According to the law. You ready? Stop. Just quit worrying. Trust God more. How many of you feel, anxiety was poof, it's gone. Just me proclaiming, stop it, just made you, whoo, I'm just, I'm good. It, that's not the way it works, is it? Now, how many of you who are married and your spouse has struggled with anxiety and worried and you've done this? Just stop worrying. Anybody done that? How did it work out for you? How did it work out for you? I'm going to guess, I'm going to go out on a limb, that now your spouse doesn't just have to deal with worry, they have to deal with rage and anger because now they want to lay hands upon you. True? Is, that, is this true? No one does, well, we do it all the time, but it doesn't help. Simply articulating what someone should think and what they should not think never gives the person the power to become what they already know they should be or the power to not do what they already know they shouldn't be doing. That's the, the weakness of the uselessness of the law. By the way, the law is not bad. It just doesn't give us what we need to actually keep it. So secondly here, the offerings don't actually remove sin. So there's the pro proclamation, obey and live, and it doesn't give us any power to obey. And there's the provision, when you disobey, you have to have an offering for sin. You have to have a sacrifice. So here's the bad news about the sacrifice. Let's take a look at the scripture here is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. Well, actually, I'll start with verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So in the Old Covenant, the priest would come and he would make sacrifices for the people and he would make sacrifices for himself. And here's what that served to do. Remind everyone they were sinners. So in case they'd forgotten, 
in case they'd forgotten when they had to make these sacrifices, they were reminded that, oh yeah, I've transgressed the law. So that's what it did. Let's take a look at what it didn't do. Verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So here, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. So the law doesn't give you any ability to keep the law. And the provision for sin, the sacrifices you're supposed to make, A, it reminds you you're a sinner, and B, does nothing with your sin. So after making the sacrifices, you're just more cognizant of your failure. And you still have a guilty conscience. So you got that going for you. This is why many people who were raised in a religious background flee the moment they're in college. I'm tired of being made to feel guilty. Some of you have taken that path. Others of you certainly know people that are on that path. They don't want anything to do with religion. It's, it's, it's stifling. All it does is remind, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And then you, you jump through all the religious hoops and you still feel shame and guilt. That's depressing. But that's not the point. The point is, according to, to verse 1 here in chapter 8, now the point that we're saying is we have a different kind of priest. It's not the old covenant it's not the old covenant. Let's take a look. The purpose of religion. If it's so awful, if it's, if, if it's so, so weak and so powerless, what's it there for? What's it there for? I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let's, let's get a little more depressed before we get to the actual good part here. So a couple of unintended consequences that come along with religion. Things that we don't bargain for, but they happen. Things that we don't bargain for. What religion often leads to is, first of all, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. How many of you have noticed this? Within religious communities, whether it's conservative evangelicalism or Catholicism or even outside of the realm of Christendom, other religions, religious people tend to, some of them, tend to believe themselves to be more righteous than the people that they live around. True? How's that play off? Is that a good thing? Never. Never. Why is this true? Why is this true? What happens is that someone who is raised in a religious culture or, like myself, enters a quote-unquote religious culture, they, here's the law, here's the commandments, keep them, do these things and live. Now that gives us a, an insecurity. It creates in us an insecurity because we never are able to do them. We can't change what we ought to want. We can't change what we don't want. And, and so we want what we shouldn't want, and we don't want what we should. But the law says, do this and live, and we don't. And so that makes us uneasy. So we stop comparing ourselves with the righteous standard of God's holiness and the law, and we start comparing ourselves with, with what? Better yet, with whom? We start comparing ourselves with other people. Well, at least I'm not like Fred. He's terrible. There's nobody worse. But I'm not that bad. Or I'm not as bad as Marge. I'm much better than Marge. And so we start to compare ourselves. I do this. I do this. I don't do this. Those people, they do these things. And then it becomes our group or my group is better than this group. 
And that's, you, you exalt yourself and you exalt your, your tribe. And that makes you feel at least temporarily better about yourself. It's self-righteousness. Who are the people that Jesus yelled at? When he got really, really mad, who was he always mad at? Those people. The religious people who were convinced that their own law-keeping is what made them right with God. Now, it also leads to a different consequence. Related, but slightly different. So, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, if you do these things, you will be blessed. If you do not do these things, you will be cursed. So, religious people have a tendency to read into their blessings what? If I'm healthy, wealthy, have a great relationship, a great family, a great job, it must be because I've been obedient. Huh. Consequently, when they see their neighbors lose their job, relationships are terrible, what do they assume? They must not be living right. How many of you ever, ever heard that? You're blessed, something, some blessing befalls you, and someone says, you must be living right. How many of you have ever heard that or said it? What do you think? Where do you think we get that? Your blessing is a direct result of your righteousness. Ah, and other people's misfortune must be a direct result of their sin. This reinforces self-righteousness, and it also brings a very, very dire consequence when the tables turn. What happens when you suffer? What happens when your diagnosis is malignant? What happens when your child is sick? What happens when you lose your job? If you've been traveling along that path, here's what you will conclude. I must be in sin. Or, or God must be unjust. A number of years ago, 2008, a good friend of mine, a married couple, Rob and Jeannie Koshin, their two-year-old daughter, Avery, was killed in an accident during her older brother's fifth birthday party. And they rushed little Avery to the hospital and I got in my car and I drove as fast as I could to the hospital and I arrived before Rob got there and there's Jeannie. And the lifeless body of her child. And I walk in to the room and she has a numb, expressionless look on her face and she asks me, is this because of my sin? This is what religion gives us. We think that our blessings are due to our righteousness and our misfortune must be punishment for our sin. So we got that going for us. And there's a third consequence. And if you spend any time at the university campus, which many of you do, you've met people like this, and some of you might be in this category that it leads to despair. The law has given you no power to obey, and all it does is bring you shame and guilt, and so you just run. I'm done. I remember some years ago, 
I had a conversation with someone who struggled with same-sex attraction, and they were in a relationship with someone of the same sex, and I invited them to church. And they said, would I be accepted at your church? I said, you would be treated with dignity and respect. But it would be a stretch for you to expect that people would embrace your life choices. To which this person responded, Brooks, I don't embrace my life choices. I fought my desires my whole life since I was a teenager and tried to take my own life. I don't want to want what I want. And so they just walked away from religion. They were tired of fighting it. They were tired of the shame. They were tired of the guilt. Because the thou shalt not does not put the desire in the heart to say, I want this. You can't change what you want. And evangelicals are so jacked up on that, they have no understanding that simply telling someone that this is wrong doesn't change the desire, that it doesn't make their desire right, but it doesn't give them the desire to want what they ought to want. And so you see people leave religion in droves. So what's the point? How can this be anything good at all? Let's look at verse 5 here. They serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. The law's not bad. It's good. It's holy. It's right. The ordinances are not bad, but they don't remove sin. But what they do is they are a copy of the shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Something very similar. We'll get to this in the weeks to come. For since the law has but a shadow of the things to come. It's a shadow of the things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. The religion, here's what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. No one is declared righteous through obeying the law. Rather, it's the law that makes us conscious of sin and points us, points us to a more perfect Savior, a more perfect high priest, which is whom we were introduced last week, the person of Jesus. He is a better high priest. He's an eternal high priest. He's an eternal high priest. Everything that the Jews were given didn't actually make them righteous, but it pointed to the one who could and who would and who would. So, the promise of the relationship. Let's turn the corner. Enough bad news. Enough shame. Enough guilt. Enough weakness, enough powerlessness. Let's see where, what this high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, has done for us. What has he secured on my behalf, on your behalf? It's so much better than the old covenant. It's so much better than, than religion. What has he done? 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Stop just for a moment. Context. The author of Hebrews is now quoting Jeremiah. This isn't Jeremiah. This is what God told Jeremiah would, he would do for his people in the distant future. In Jeremiah's time. So contextually, the Israelites are being captive. They're taken captive. They are being led into captivity into Babylon. And he's saying, 70 years later, God is going to release you. But understand this. There's going to come a day someday. Someday in the future when I will, God will, I will write my, my laws on your heart and you'll be my people. That day is present tense as the author of Hebrews is writing these words. That it's been fulfilled. So, so let's take a look. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after they declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one to his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. First of all, in the old covenant, we have the written commands. Do these things and you shall live. They're written. They're right there. In the new covenant, they are written upon our hearts. Not only do we know what they say, but now we have a desire to do them. The desire was not present before, but now it is. According to the terms of the new covenant. Let's keep going. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one what? Obsolete. It's obsolete. The first covenant's obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So in the first covenant, go backwards a few verses to verse 9. How does God deal? So we have God's proclamation, do these things and live written on tablets of stone, written on scrolls. Here's what it says, now do it. In the new covenant, God writes them on our hearts. In the old covenant, how does God deal with our sin? He gives us provision. He gives us provision. Make these sacrifices. But they don't really take away sin. And they don't give us a desire to obey. So what happens? Take a look at verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 8. Actually, let's take a look at verse 8 and 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Not like, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. Catch this, the last, second half of verse 9. For they did not continue in my covenant. Right? What's the consequence? I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. They turned from me, I turned from them. I gave them over their sin. Their hearts were hardened through disbelief, and they shall not enter my rest. Stun. Obey and live, disobey and you'll be cursed. They chose to disobey, and I forsook them. I showed no concern for them. That's the old covenant. What's the new covenant say? I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. God is not senile. God is not struggling with Alzheimer's. He does not have dementia. This is not a matter of he does not have the ability to recall your transgressions. 
What this means is that God chooses by an act of his own volitional will to refuse to take into account your sin. He does not choose to look at you through your failures, your willful transgressions, your inability to desire what you should desire, and your inability to not desire what you shouldn't desire. He refuses to look at you that way. The psalmist says that he has separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, east and west are not points on a map. They're trajectories. They're, they're, they're directional. So the distance between east and west is, is a nonsensical question. There is no distance. It's, it's infinity. Do you understand what Christ has done for you? He separated your sins as far as the east is from the west. Not because of the sacrifice of bulls and lambs and goats. Not because of your stellar attempt at obeying the law, but because of his perfect righteous son. In the order of Melchizedek, the eternal high priest, who lives and intercedes at the throne of God constantly for you and for me. How? How does he do this? Now, to answer that question properly, we have to cover chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13. But I have approximately three minutes before I'm supposed to close in prayer. So we're not going to cover all of those chapters. That's the point of going through this verse by verse. But I will close with the Apostle Paul. He answers this in Romans chapter 8. Let's take a look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, the author of Hebrews, the author of Paul, they're talking the same language here. The law has no ability. It's weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. How did he, what did he do? He did what the law couldn't do. How? By sending his son. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now, does that mean Jesus was sinful? No, in the likeness of. What happened? What happened? In, he, and, and he condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Whose flesh was sin condemned in? His, Jesus. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul is saying, he says this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus, who knew no sin, he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. My sin was condemned in Christ. If you are in Christ and you have a covenantal relationship with him by grace through faith, your sin was condemned in Christ. Now, what are the results of that? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might actually be fulfilled in us. Well, that's different. That means not only that will Christ impute his righteousness to us, but that we will be enabled to actually become righteous. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you know what Jeremiah was talking about? Same thing Ezekiel was talking about in his prophecy. That God would not only give us the written word, but he would etch it upon our hearts. My sin was etched upon the hands and feet of Jesus, as was yours. 
and his righteousness was etched upon my heart. And he has given to me a desire. I, you remember in the, earlier in the sermon how I said I used to be addicted to porn? If it, my 19-year-old self, if you would have had a conversation with me and said, Brooks, is there ever a day that you won't desire that? I would have said, no. No, this is what I desire. I would have... The idea that some years after I became a Christian, I would not only find that kind of sexual immorality wrong, but I would find it repugnant and distasteful was beyond anything I could imagine. Which, which does not mean that I'm, 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 I'm not, I, I couldn't fall into sexual immorality, I couldn't fall into lust, but it does mean that I'm free. God has written his law on my heart. I have a desire to live for righteousness not for righteousness' sake, but for the sake of the Savior who redeemed me. And, and more than that, it's, it gets better. It gets better. I, I love what I do because I get to tell you how awesome this is. Listen, listen, it's not just that I'm forgiven. It's not just that His law is written upon my heart. When I fail, not if, but when I transgress, two or three verses earlier, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ... There's no condemnation. How can that be? How can God turn his face away from the Israelites who rejected him in the wilderness and not turn his face away from me? How can God forsake Israel and not forsake me? Because he forsook his son. When you and I enter into a relationship with Christ, he becomes our groom and we become his bride. And his wedding gift to you, he takes your sin and my sin and gives you his righteousness. And the Father will never leave you nor forsake you because he forsook his son. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He heard nothing. Because the Father turned away. So that he will never turn away from you. Now some of you are listening to this and you come from religious backgrounds and you say that's scandalous and you're right. You are you are right. It is totally scandalous that a holy and a righteous God would give his own son for you. That is so scandalous. You're so right. And some of you that come from a religious background, you also think that this is dangerous. That this kind of preaching, this kind of raw, free, unconditional grace that's received exclusively by faith. You say, Brooks, you can't say that. That's going to lead to sin. You couldn't be more wrong. That is the very chisel, his grace that etches the desire to obey upon my heart. The fear of condemnation may Obviously, draw people to a kind of obedience, but it cannot create love. It cannot create desire, but grace can. 
And that's the beauty of the relationship that God offers you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling these people. Don't walk away from this. What you had is a foretaste at best of what God wants you to have through Christ. So that was a lot longer than three minutes, wasn't it? But here's the deal. Whether or not you are like that Catholic guy that hadn't entered into a covenantal relationship with Christ, if you're there, if this is all brand new to you, you, gotta, you have to repent of two things. Number one, your sin. Repent of your sin. That's self-evident. God is a holy God, and you can't stand before him with sin. Repent of your sin. You can't make yourself righteous, but you can accept the free gift that he gives you. Number two, there's something else to repent of, though, and, and what is that? You need to repent of your righteousness. That same sounds odd that you repent. Repent of the idea that through your obedience, you can gain any merit or favor with God. If you pull out, I don't know, on Clinton Street here and you get sideswiped and God says, why should I accept you? If you drop the line, I'm trying to be a good person, you don't get it. That's basically saying, my goodness and my righteousness, I will come before God and they'll say, here's my resume. You've got to repent of that. Your righteousness is filthy rags to God. Jesus did not go to the cross so that he could show you how to be more righteous. He went to the cross because you and I are sinners. So receive him as your Savior. And for those of you who have been walking with him, understand that you and I, all of us, I've been walking with Christ since 1988, all of us have a propensity to slide back into self-justification. And we begin to convince ourselves that our worth, our identity is wrapped up in how we do instead of who we are. Just let the new covenant relationship that you have in Christ wash over you so that you might celebrate and taste and see that he is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the undeserved mercy which you so freely give us in, the, in and through the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and the giving of the Spirit. Father, I pray that you would help us to turn from the useless principles of religion and embrace our identity in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.